All right, if you got your Bibles, we're going to be in Acts 12. Let's go ahead and pray. Father God, uh, as we just heard the sermon, not inerrant. A catechism, not inerrant. A theology, a commentary, not inerrant. But your scripture is. And so allow us to be changed by biblical truths. And even as we explain them, allow us the wisdom to see what is accurate from what is inaccurate and to be changed by truth. Guide us, we ask, in the name of Christ. Amen. Some of you know the location Akaba. Akaba is today in modern-day Jordan. It overlooks the Red Sea. It was a very important place during World War I. In World War I, the Ottoman or Turkish Empire was controlling that part of the waterways. They had built large guns, ship-sinking guns off a cliff. And any boat, any ship that came through that part of the Red Sea almost certainly was sunk. And it was necessary to take those guns out so that we could shorten World War I because the Ottoman Empire and Germany and Austria were fighting the rest of the world and we would lose 38 million individuals to casualties, both in the military and civilian. It was necessary to shorten this war. Now, if you know anything about those huge guns, you know that they could rotate a little bit right and a little bit left, but they could not rotate 180 degrees. They only went in one direction to control the Red Sea. Now, they were not concerned. The Ottoman Empire knew that the anvil of the sun was behind them. The anvil of the sun is 600 miles in any direction of the most impenetrable desert the world knows. 25,000 square miles of desert was at their back. And in order to come from the north to get to those guns, you'd have to go through 25,000 square miles or 600 miles in any direction, and there was no water source. It could not be done. But you probably watched, those of you who are a bit older, Lawrence of Arabia. He gets all the credit, but it really should be a guy named Nasser. And they gathered together some irregular Arabs. They got some local individuals to help them out and to guide them. And somehow they went through the 600 mile path of the anvil of the sun. And if you saw the movie, you saw Lawrence of Arabia on a horse and a camel, and they're running right by these guns that are powerless to stop them because they only go in one direction and there's absolutely no defense in the other direction. What was the problem? They became complacent. Now understand how important this was. Not only did this hasten to end World War I, but it ended the Ottoman Empire's grip over Palestine, which then went to the British Empire. And in 1946 and 47, 
the British mandate reestablished the modern nation of Israel. So this battle matters. It matters a great deal. But why was it won by the allies lost by the Ottoman Empire? Complacency. Things had been going well. Any ship that came through, they sunk. They had no possibility of being taken out from the sea. They became complacent. And complacency always leads to destruction. Well, that's what today's text is about. It's about complacency when the enemy attacks. Now think about our context. Things have been going well for the church, have it not? Acts 10, Acts 11. In Acts chapter 10, we have uh, Peter, and it's noontime, he's hungry, he's gone up on the roof to pray, someone's preparing his lunch, and God gives him a vision, not once, not twice, three times, the smorgasbord of Leviticus 11 foods that he's not allowed to eat comes down out of heaven, and God says, take up, kill, and eat. And you remember, he says, by no means, Lord, I've never allowed any unclean food. And God says, what I have called clean, do not call unclean. And the vision really has nothing to do with food. It has everything to do with the reality that the gospel is going to the Gentile world. Jews call the Gentiles unclean, and God is now reaching into the Gentile world, and he's sending Peter, of all people, to a place called Caesarea Maritima, just north of Tel Aviv on the Mediterranean. It was a seaport. 300 ships could be held any given day, more than any port in the world. Herod the Great built it in 20 BC. It was a Roman place. A Jew would not enter it. There was a temple to Jupiter within it. Around the walls were all sorts of idols actually embedded into the walls. And although God hates the idolatry, he cares for the people in there. And God sends Peter into Caesarea Maritima and he meets a centurion, an oppressor for Rome named Cornelius. And he tells Cornelius that salvation is by faith in Christ alone. Believe in Christ, receive Christ. And Cornelius and his family come to a saving knowledge of Jesus Christ. What happens next? We have the fourth great city in the Roman Empire. The first great city is Rome, and then you have Alexandria, then you have Ephesus, and then you have this, this small city called Antioch, not so small, a half a million people, made up of Jews and Gentiles and Romans, and 25,000 Jews are a part of it. So it's this city of a half a million, and it's filled with idolatry. It's filled with immorality. It might be the place you just wipe your hands and say, I'm moving on, and God says, go. And the gospel penetrates Antioch. And things are really going well for the church. The church is no longer Jewish. It's also Gentile. Romans are coming to Christ. Greeks are coming to Christ. Arabs are coming to Christ. Jews are coming to Christ. Things are going well. And I think the church hits a bit of complacency. 
And often when things are going well, that's when Satan attacks. You remember Ephesians 6.12, for your battle is not against flesh and blood, but against the principalities and powers and forces of this dark world from the heavenly realms. Our battle is not against one another. It's against Satan. And you remember what we read in scripture, your enemy, the devil, prowls around like a roaring lion looking for someone to devour. Resist him. Submit to God. Resist Satan. Don't become complacent. Because the moment we have complacency in our lives, Satan attacks. I want to pick up in their text, and I think we'll make the case that Satan attacks. Acts 12, verse 1. About that time, Herod the king laid violent hands on some who belonged to the church. He killed James, the brother of John, with a sword. And when he saw that it pleased the Jews, he proceeded to arrest Peter also. This was during the days of the unleavened bread. And when he had seized him, he put him in prison, delivering him over to four squads. I think a squad is about eight men. That's imprecise because as a centurion covers 100 men, sometimes 60 all the way to 120. A squad is eight men, but sometimes it's six and sometimes it's 11. But he's got four of them, four squads of soldiers to guard him, intending after the Passover to bring him out to the people. Let's begin our text. In verse one, you and I are introduced to Herod. Now I said last week that Herod is kind of a surname it's actually a class of a family, and it's kind of difficult to know which Herod we got, because we got five Herods just in the Gospels. So let's just take a moment to do a little primer on Herod. If you go to Israel today, the Herod that you visit many of his sites is called Herod the Great or Herod the Builder. He's the guy that built that city, Caesarea Maritima, just above Tel Aviv that port city. It's magnificent. And when you go there, you see things that you have not seen before, like a huge hippodrome. Hippo is the Greek word for horse. It's, it's the chariot horse race. It's all intact. There's a lot in Caesarea Maritima. Or you go to the Temple Mount, and the Temple Mount is almost double the size prior to Herod because of Herod. And then you go to the western or wailing wall. He built that. That's some of his creation. Or you go to the Herodian that used to be a small hill that he built up and then it's hollowed out and it's one of his palaces. Or you go down south by the Dead Sea and you go to Masada. He didn't build Masada. He repurposed Masada as another one of his palaces. These are some of the imprints of Herod the Great. He's the guy that the Magi, they see the star in the east, they follow it, they go to Herod's palace, and they say, who has been born king of the Jews? That's Herod the Great. Well, about the time Jesus is born, Herod the Great kicks the bucket and he's gone. He's replaced by Herod Archelaus. This is also a Herod of Matthew 2. That's really, really tough, because Matthew 2 has two Herods in it, because one dies and one comes to the throne. This Herod, Herod Archelaus, is who Mary and Joseph and baby Jesus need to flee and they go to Egypt because he's a bad actor. He wants to kill them and they have to flee to a foreign country. He rules for 10 years, but he's incompetent. So Rome sacks him. 
The third Herod is Herod Antipas I. Luke 13 calls him the fox. That tells you something about him. He's a conniving kind of guy. He's always got his hands involved in things where they shouldn't be. For instance, in Mark chapter 6, this is Herod Antipas I. He's the guy that steals his uncle, Philip's wife. Hey, uncle, I got power. I'm taking your wife. And he takes Herodias as his wife. John the Baptist won't hear of it. And so John the Baptist confronts them for their immorality. And as a result, John the Baptist is thrown into prison. Fast forward a little bit, and it's poker night with the boys. That's in the margins. And they're playing poker, and they're getting drunk. And this Herod, Antipas I, sends for his wife's daughter from the previous marriage, Salome, and she dances in a provocative fashion. And he is so amazed by it, he offers her up to half of, her, of his kingdom. She goes to mom and says, what should we ask for? And mom says, you remember John the Baptist? He's hurting the family name. Let's have his head on a platter. That's that third Herod, Herod Antipas the fox. The fourth Herod is actually the Herod of Acts 12. That's Herod Agrippa I. A little later in this text, we'll see it in a week or two, he's the one that the crowds kind of, to butter him up, say, the voice of a God, not of a man, the voice of a God, not of a man. And he should have said, no, 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 no. There's only one God and I'm not him. But he loves the applause and the praise and God strikes him dead, actually at Caesarea Maritima, where his predecessor, Herod the Great, had built that fort city. And then the last one is Herod Agrippa II. He comes into play in Acts 25 and 26, where Paul testifies and defends himself before him. So these are our Herods. Our Herod today is Herod Agrippa I. He's the fourth Herod. He wasn't raised in Palestine. His family is there, but as a young boy, he's shipped off to Rome to live with the imperial family. The idea is he's going to learn what you need to know to rule a country. So he's with the imperial family and he's kind of dumb. I'm just telling you. What he does when he's an 18 or 19 year old is he makes the mistake of the life. He talks poorly about Emperor Tiberius and it gets back to Emperor Tiberius and lucky for him, he's just thrown in prison. His political career is done. You do that twice and you die. But then Tiberius dies. And you remember that Herod Agrippa I grew up with the palace boys. And he's replaced by probably one of the grossest emperors, Emperor Caligula. Him and Nero are the worst. And Caligula and Agrippa are buddies and so he's immediately released from prison and he's given several Palestinian, house, or Palestinian cities to rule. Things are looking up. And then Caligula dies and another palace boy, 
Claudius comes to the throne and they're really close. And Claudius says, oh no, it's not good for you to rule over a couple of cities. I'm gonna give you all of Israel, all of Samaria. You can be the king. And so the Herod name is restored. But you see, there's a problem if you're a Herod. The problem is this. You're not fully Jewish. The Herod family is half Jew, half Jordanian. We call them Idumean. And that is a serious problem. Let me read to us out of Deuteronomy chapter 17, verse 15. It says this. You may indeed set a king over you whom the Lord your God will choose. One from among your brothers you shall set as king over you. Read, a Jew you shall set over you. You may not put a foreigner, a non-Jew, over you who is not your brother. So if you're part of the Herod family, the dynasty, five rulers, actually six, but one's not mentioned in the Gospels. If you're part of the Herod dynasty, you start out at a detriment. You're not Jewish. And you're a puppet king. You don't really rule. Rome rules and tells you what to do. And you got exactly two jobs. You don't have three. You don't have one. You have two jobs. You collect taxes and you keep the peace. Those are your only jobs. If you collect taxes for Rome and the people you're watching over are peaceful, you win, you get paid, you keep your job and you can pass on to your next generation and the generation after that. But the Jews don't like the Herod family. The surname Herod are Idumeans. They're usurpers. They're pawns of the emperor Rome. And so you will do anything you can if you're shrewd. You're going to do anything you can to make the populace like you. And so what does this Herod do? He kills James, and the text says, the populace likes it. And he thinks to himself, well, if killing one apostle makes them like me a little more, I wonder what two would be like, and he arrests Peter. Now again, we have a problem. The text tells us it's James. James is one of those names, and you got to know which James you're talking about. In fact, in today's text, we actually have two James. Well, the James that dies is James the son of Zebedee, his brother is John. You remember them. They are apostles, pretty young, probably 18, 19. They're called sons of thunder. Now, you can call me that. That's a nickname I can live with. Thunder, that's, that's a manly name, right? But they got it kind of the wrong way. You remember in Luke chapter Nine, I think it is. Could be seven, but I think it's Luke nine. They go into a Samaritan village and while they're there, they share the gospel. They tell people about Christ and nobody cares. They pour out their heart. They tell people how they can be saved from their sin and and there is no response. Now, what does the Bible tell us to do? It actually says, wipe the dust off your feet and go tell somebody else. That's what it actually tells us to do. But that's not what they do. They call down lightning from heaven. They go nuclear. You're not going to believe in Jesus. You're going to meet Jesus. Like right now. 
That's why they get the name Sons of Thunder. They're also a little bit arrogant. You remember in Mark chapter 10, they're mama boys and uh, they get mama to do their bidding. And so mama goes up to Jesus and says, hey, when you come into your kingdom, uh, you know the seat on the right? Why don't you put James there? And the seat on the left, that would be good for John. And Jesus seems to address not mama, but the boys. And he says, are you able to drink the cup that I'm going to drink? Are you able to be baptized in the baptism that I'm going to be baptized in? He's talking about death. He's talking about martyrdom. And they say, oh yeah, yeah, we are. And Jesus said this, you will drink the cup that I drink and you will be baptized as I am baptized. But to sit on my right and on my left is not for me to give, it has been given from the foundation of the world. Doesn't even tell us who's gonna be there. Maybe one of you. And Jesus just prophesied that they're gonna die violent deaths. And they do. Now we know of the 12 disciples, 10 are martyred for their faith. We only get details of one, James. Nine others are martyred. Judas Iscariot, he commits suicide, and James's brother John, he wishes he had died a martyr. He was boiled in oil and survived and put on the island of Patmos, a penal colony, to die. Jesus has just told them, back in Mark 10, what's going to happen, and now we're getting part of the fulfillment. Let me pick up in our text in verse 4, and I'll read to 11. And when he had seized him, he put him in prison, delivering him over to four squads of soldiers to guard him, intending after the Passover to bring him out to the people. So Peter was kept in prison, but earnestly prayed for by the, God, by the church of God. Now Herod, when he was about to bring him out on that very night, he found Peter was sleeping. Koi mamanas, it's a present participle. This is kind of like not a cat nap. This is ream sleep. This is the word you would use if you were putting Adam to sleep and removing one of his ribs and fashioning Eve. Now I want you to think about that. You know, when I tend to think of Peter, I think of a mess up, but that's really Peter prior to Jesus's ascension. Do you know this is the third time Peter has already been in prison? Three times now for the sake of the gospel. And this guy knows he's about to die tomorrow and he sleeps and it's not a catnap. He's really sleeping because he has faith in God in life and in death. That's an amazing thing. Now when Herod was about to bring him out on that very night, Peter was sleeping between two soldiers bound with two chains and sentries before the door were guarding the prison. And behold, an angel of the Lord stood next to him and a light shone in the cell. And he struck Peter on the side and woke him saying, get up quickly. And the chains fell off his hands. And the angel said to him, dress yourself and put on your sandals. And he did so. And he said to him, wrap your cloak around you and follow me. And he went out and followed him. He did not know 
that what was about to be done by the angel was real, but thought he was seeing a vision. When they had passed the first and the second guard, they came to the iron gate leading to the city. It opened for them of its own accord, and they went out and went along one street, and immediately the angel left him. When Peter came to himself, he said, now I am sure that the Lord has sent his angel and rescued me from the hand of Herod and from all the Jewish people were expecting. James is dead and now Herod has arrested Peter. And according to verse six, the church begins to pray. Now has the church been praying up to this point? Well, it's really silent. We don't know. This is my suspicion. I'm going to surmise for a moment. I think when James is arrested, the church prays. But I don't think they're thinking martyrdom. It's been several months since Stephen was martyred in Acts 7. And this Saul Paul dude seems to have come around. And he's not such a bad actor. And he's the one that caused that. And so I think they think that James is going to be roughed up, beat up, maybe persecuted a little bit, and then released back to the church. I think that's what's going on. And then when James is martyred by the sword and Peter is arrested, they suddenly say, whoa, this is serious. And they begin to pray. And the text says they pray earnestly. That's a pretty important word. This word earnestly is the same word used when Jesus is in the Garden of Gethsemane And he knows he's about to face the cross. He knows that he's about to have our sin thrown upon him, that he is going to die for our sin, that if by faith we would believe in Christ and receive him as Savior, we would be given eternal life. And the text says that he sweats something like great drops of blood. That's the kind of prayer that is going on. We know what it's like, don't we? Maybe we have a loved one. And that loved one is really sick and someone has said, will you pray? The loved one is stage four. And we say, yeah, we'll we'll pray. And we pray and we pray earnestly, but not very expectantly. We pray earnestly. We've said we're going to pray and we're going to pray, but we can't get over the fact that it's stage four and, and we forget that God is God. Or maybe a parent or a grandparent comes and said, will you pray for my child? my grandchild, very far from God. And and we've interacted with that child or that grandchild and we say, yeah, they are far from God. And I can't imagine that they're ever going to embrace Christ, but we promise to pray and we pray and we may even pray fervently, but not very expectantly. That's what's going on. And all the while, Peter is sleeping. It's amazing. This is the Peter who will write in 1 Peter 5, 7, cast your cares, cast your anxieties upon him because he cares for you. Those are not empty words. He's living them out. Humanly, we should expect him to die. We should expect his martyrdom humanly. That's what he should expect. But whether in life or death, he knows God is in control. Kind of like Paul who says, for me to live is Christ, to die is gain. Peter is able to sleep in the midst of this. I think Peter has grasped Genesis 28. You'll know the text. You'll know the account when I give it to you. From Genesis 12 to Genesis 50, we have four leaders 
of a party. We call them patriarchs. You have Abraham, Isaac, Jacob, and Joseph. Abraham is really a good guy unless you're married to him. He's the loser husband of the year, twice. It's true. Isaac, he's really looking up. He really liked Isaac. Jacob, he's the black sheep. He is an utter mess. If there is something that can be done wrong, that's Jacob. And then Joseph, he's probably the best of the bunch, right? Well, Genesis 28 is about Jacob, the mess up, the black sheep, the guy who has done everything wrong, seems to be far from the Lord. You remember in a scheme, he actually bilks his dull brother out of his inheritance. And because of that, he needs to flee for his life. He goes out in the wilderness. He's alone. He's been alone for a while. He's despondent. He's in despair. And, and God gives him a vision. And the vision is of a ladder. And the ladder is at the base of his feet. And it goes all the way up to heaven. And there are ministering angels going up and down the ladder. Now what makes Genesis 28 so powerful is that it's not in the life of Abraham or Isaac or Joseph. It's in the black sheep. It's Jacob. We could expect God sending ministering spirits to all these others, but, but Jacob? And yet that's what the vision is. And that gives us confidence. That gives us hope. That if we know Christ, even though we mess up in sin, we've got this ladder from heaven down to earth where ministering spirits are coming up and down and God cares for us. And you remember what, what Jacob says. Surely God has been in this place. Well, that's Peter. In prison with human expectation of dying the next day, surely God has been in this place. Let's pick up in verse 12. And I want to read all the way to 19. When he realized this, he went to the house of Mary, the mother of John, whose other name was Mark, where many were gathered together and were praying. And when he, this is Peter, knocked at the door of the gateway, a servant girl named Rhoda came to answer. Recognizing Peter's voice, in her joy she did not open the gate, but ran in and reported that Peter was standing at the gate. They said to her, you are out of your mind. But she kept insisting that it was so, and they kept saying, it is his angel. But Peter continued knocking. And when they opened, they saw him and were amazed. But motioning to them with his hand to be silent, he described to them how the Lord had brought him out of prison. And he said, tell these things to James. And you say, what? James is dead. Wrong James. I told you there's two James in this text. This is James the just. This is the half-brother of Jesus who leads the church in Jerusalem. Tell it to the leader of the church of Jerusalem and to his brothers. Then he departed and went to another place. Now when day came... There was no little disturbance among the soldiers over what had become of Peter. And after Herod searched for him and did not find him, he examined the sentries and ordered that they should be put to death. Don't ever say that sin doesn't have collateral damage. 
When we sin, there's collateral damage. These centuries have done nothing wrong. And that because of the sin of Herod, some of them die. Then he went down from Judah to Caesarea and he spent time there. What a prayer meeting. Again, the text says that there is fervent prayer. Lots of people have gathered. They've been praying all night. Even when they hear a knock on the door, that doesn't interrupt the prayer meeting. And Rhoda goes and, and she doesn't even slam the door in his face. She doesn't even open the door. She hears his voice and with joy, she goes up and says, hey, prayer meeting ended. Peter's here. And they said, don't bother us. We're praying for Peter's release. If Peter were really released, we wouldn't be praying. So stop bothering us. And I'm embarrassed. Because it's not enough to pray fervently. We've got to pray expectantly. They're praying fervently. They're not praying expectantly. They're forgetting who God is and they're forgetting what God can do. So they're praying all night long. They're not even allowing a knock on the door to interrupt them, but they don't really believe that God is going to act. And again, I think of somebody who comes to me and says, pray, I need a job, pray, so-and-so is sick, pray, and I pray. But I want to pray not only fervently, but expectantly. There's an old familiar story it's of uh, a place in the west of yesteryear. They were suffering a drought. If they didn't get rain very soon, there would be total crop loss. So they all gathered in the church and they began to pray. And about an hour into it, a woman got up and she said, you guys don't believe that God's going to answer prayer. And they were insulted. And she said, I know we don't believe it because we don't have an umbrella in the house. None of us came with our jackets. And that reminds me, it's not just fervent prayer. It is expectant prayer. But when we talk about prayer, and that's really what the text is about, we need to make sure that we're praying in accordance with what God would answer. God will never answer a prayer that is sinful. It will never happen. He will not answer a prayer that is outside his will. In fact, James says in James 4, 3, you have not because you ask amiss. What is amiss prayer? It's self-centered prayer. I want what Jeff wants in Jeff's timing. And God answers for the benefit of his people, not Jeff, in his timing based on eternity. So then you might say, well, if you got a prayer, only according to the will of God. Why bother to pray? Because he's going to do it, right? Why bother to pray? But you remember the verse just prior to that in James 4? James 4, 2 says, you have not because you ask not. It's fervent prayer. It's expectant prayer. It's prayer according to the will of God. And it's prayer that has actually been asked. Sometimes we have not what God is willing to give us because we haven't asked for it. Sometimes we have not because we're asking the wrong things. Sometimes we're not really fervent in prayer. We just kind of go through the motions. 
And sometimes we pray and we don't expect God to show up. If I want to learn something from the text about prayer, I want to learn that prayer is to be fervent. It's to be expect, expectant. It is to be prayer that asks within the will of God. And it has to be asked because God sometimes doesn't ask or act on our behalf because we have not asked. Fervent prayer, expectant prayer. Prayer in the will of God and prayer that actually is asked. That's what I want to walk away with from today's text. Let's pray. Father God, uh, we pray that this kind of prayer would be truth in our lives. That we would be prayer warriors, individuals and families and churches that pray. And we would believe that you can act and we would be committed to prayer that we would seek your better will rather than our imperfect requests and that we would indeed ask. Allow us to pray in biblical ways. It's in the name of Christ we pray. Amen.